Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Now it's time in our worship service to orient, orient our hearts and minds to the preaching of God's word. So please take God's word and turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. We'll be focusing on Mark 2, verses 15 to 17 on this Lord's Day. I've entitled today's exposition after the wonderful hymn we just sung, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. Because that's exactly what Mark has revealed in Mark 2, 15 to 17. Let's begin by reading the text that the Holy Spirit will illuminate to us at this moment. Mark 2, verse 15 says, And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Amen. Many of you who know me well know that I was converted to Christ when I was in the army stationed in Alaska. Not long after my conversion, I began a bachelor's program in Christian ministry simply because I wanted Bible knowledge. I had an unquenchable thirst for Bible knowledge because I had none. Prior to this time in my life, I had never heard the gospel. I had never been to one Bible study because where I grew up, in the culture I grew up, nobody had carried a Bible. The first class I took was uh, taught by an old Southern Baptist pastor, and it was called Old Testament Survey. And I absolutely loved it, and I excelled at it, which was remarkable because just about four years prior, I barely, and I mean just barely, graduated high school. Just by the skin of my teeth, I made it into the military. That Old Testament survey class gave me the confidence boost I needed to succeed in college. And so after that, I charted out the rest of my degree plan. The next class I took after Old Testament survey was New Testament survey. But I felt a little bit more brave, and I signed up for two classes which was a class that most of you have probably taken, the dreaded English composition. Now, as you can imagine, I really didn't care much for that class because it had pretty much zero spiritual significance. Mind you that I was a brand new convert who only cared about learning the Bible and theology. So I was taking a general ed classes only because they were required. But what I gained out of that particular class was not merely how to write at a basic undergrad level. What I gained in that class was far better. I gained a lifelong friend. His name is Sam. I met Sam during a break one evening in the hallway, 
And it wasn't long before we really clicked because we were very like-minded, theologically. In the following months, we hosted each other for dinner. And our families grew to be quite close, and to this day we're close. I'll never forget one eventful Saturday night that my wife and I hosted Sam and his, his wife, Kim. For dinner, we decided to get pizza. So being the chivalrous and manly men we were, Sam and I volunteered to go pick up the pizzas. We took his car, and we drove to the nearest Papa Murphy's. On the way back from Papa Murphy's, while we were stopped at an intersection, we noticed a group of protesters who were protesting a nearby adjacent conference that was being held at a church. Now, to give you an idea of what kind of protesters they were, they were holding up rainbow-colored signs. I can remember like it was yesterday. What drew our attention immediately was a sign that said, quote, God loves me, so should you. Immediately upon seeing that sign, my friend Sam decided right then and there that we needed to go witness to them. I didn't want to. <laughs> I'll, I'll confess. I wanted to go home to my wife and eat pizza. But Sam just had this, this incredible burden to go preach Christ to these lost souls. So we did. We pulled over to the closest parking lot. We got out. And with fear and trepidation, we approached this rather medium-sized group of hostile protesters. We proceeded to preach Christ to them for some time. As you can imagine, it was one of the most intense and intimidating evangelistic encounters I've ever experienced. What my wonderful best friend Sam did on that dreary Anchorage Saturday evening was the most natural thing for any Christian to do. And that is to tell others about Jesus Christ. It's been said that when Christ reigns in the hearts, he is spoken of from the lips. It would be unnatural for the regenerate not to want to talk about Christ to others. In fact, one indication, as I mentioned last Sunday, of being a false convert or a phony believer is lacking the desire to evangelize. Now, from time to time, we may experience a season of lukewarmness or cold indifference to the Great Commission. But sooner or later, the Spirit will convict you and discipline you if you are one of God's elect. God has saved us from being of the world and sends us back into the world to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That is our primary business. As we live out our lives until that day of our appointed judgment, or until we are raptured, whichever comes first. That business of making disciples was precisely what my highly evangelistic friend led me to do 
to that group of protesters. And that's precisely what Levi did as soon as he was converted. This Lord's Day, I I am going to preach a message on Jesus, the friend of sinners. And And it revolves around Levi's immediate outreach to sinners. Last Lord's Day, I preached a message from Mark 2, verses 13 to 14 on Levi's conversion. After Levi took one step out of the kingdom of darkness and took one step into the kingdom of heaven, having left behind his tax booth and life of sin, he immediately started telling those in his sphere of influence about the one who had radically changed his life. According to the following verses in verses 15 to 17, we see that he promptly started witnessing. And he introduced his friends to the one and only man who has authority to forgive sins and transform lives by grace through faith alone. His method of outreach? Simple. He invited his associates over to his house for a dinner party. The goal? simply to introduce his friends to the Lord Jesus Christ. What Matthew, this former tax collector and sinner, what he did is exactly what we must do. Jesus was a friend of sinners. And so we also must be a friend of sinners in the same way he was. As look at these verses today. I pray that it will be an encouragement to all of us to be like Matthew and be witnesses for Christ to a lost world. That's the takeaway for today. These three verses are clearly revolved around three points. The sinner's house in verse 15, the scribe's question, verse 16, and then finally the Savior's response in verse 17. First, Let's look at the sinner's house in verse 15. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. Matthew's conversion that we read about prior led him immediately to plan and host a large banquet consisting of tax collectors and sinners. Now, you need to note that the very first thing that Levi did in his Christian life was invite people over to his house to hear Jesus. Note that he went on the offense. He didn't wait for for people to come to him. He didn't wait for people to come in and say, Levi, you've changed. Would you please, pretty please, just tell me... Why you've changed? Will you tell me about your conversion? I'd love to hear it. Unbelievers don't do that. We are not called to sit and wait for people to start the conversation. We are called to go on the offense. We are called to initiate the conversation. We are called to go out tell everyone. In order to accommodate this sizable get-together, Matthew's house was large, which was indicative of his 
profitable career as a tax collector. The celebration centered on a feast, and who was the guest of honor? Jesus. The text says the Lord was reclining at the table in Matthew's house. Now, think of, you know, don't think of a, of a typical dining room table like we have. In those days, t- the tables were low to the ground, and they kind of just would, would, would lean over on their elbow. And, and that's kind of how, how they, how they socialized and had meals together. So here we see that evidently Jesus surrounded himself with a group of people that would have included people like Levi, sinners, people who were criminals, thieves, thugs, enforcers, prostitutes, and Gentiles, whom all were part of the outcast network that Matthew himself is a part of. Now, brothers and sisters, just a note on the Gentiles. If you and I would have been alive at this point in redemptive history, you too would have been counted among this group of sinners. Do you realize that? Because you're a Gentile, a non-Jew. And that's why one of the most jolting and humbling verses in all of Scripture is Ephesians 2.12. It says this, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Gentiles. But verse 13 says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So understand that we Gentiles have been grafted in By God's grace, according to Romans 11, we have been grafted into the covenants of promise. Before Christ, you were either a proselyte, someone who had converted to Judaism through the system they had in place, or you were a dirty, pagan, Gentile, a sinner. From the, from the perspective of the self-righteous religious leaders of Jesus' time, you and I would have been among the people who represent the drug society. But from Jesus' viewpoint, along with the tax collectors and sinners and Gentiles, we would have been the mission field. We Every single one of us here today would have qualified to be invited to this banquet to hear Jesus. The fact that Jesus was reclining at this table suggests that this party was an intimate, prolonged meal at which there would have been plenty of time for conversation, discussion, and, of course, gospel teaching. 
In the first century Israel, sharing a meal together was a statement of social acceptance and friendship, just like it is today. Right? When you, when you invite someone to your home, you're, you're sending a message to them. You're saying you want to be their friend. You're saying that you want to show love to them. You're showing them that you accept them. It was the same then. Also, just like today, there was a clear social division between low to middle to upper class elites. It's probably safe to say that in our day, just like then, the upper class, upper, rich upper class would not be caught dead with the riffraff of our society, right? In the same way, no respectable rabbi in the first century would have ever broken bread with tax collectors and sinners, let alone attend a massive event that was put on for such people. So for the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to come and recline and eat with these people was beyond outrageous in the eyes of of the religious leaders. For Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Levi, along with numerous others who were beginning to follow Jesus, being in such an intimate gathering with a rabbi was unthinkable. Very offensive. Despicable. Shocking. It was a public, on Jesus' part, a public repudiation of the tradition. You see, other than my Roman Catholic background, you, and mixed with Jesus' action, you see why it's easy for me to go, to go on an attack against tradition. I was enslaved to it, and so was first century Israel. Be very careful of allowing man-made tradition to enslave you. But again... The opinions of the religious people didn't phase Jesus one iota, did it? Even in the face of direct opposition and criticism from the Pharisees, who we'll get to in a minute, Jesus doesn't, does not pull any punches. He doesn't allow the self-righteous men to derail his evangelistic banquet. Before we get to the Pharisees, I think, I think there's some lessons, four lessons to be exact, that we can learn from Levi with regard to personal evangelism and outreach that we can apply in our own lives. Okay? The first lesson we can learn from Levi is to start witnessing immediately. Start witnessing immediately. Go, go back to the beginning of verse 15 for a second. You will see the word and. You guys see that? That's there to function in the same way as the adverb immediately. It's the hinge word. It's the thread that weaves Mark's narrative tightly together. It's a fast-paced lifestyle, remember? From one event to the next. So that little conjunction implies that Levi had only been following Jesus for a very, very short period of time before he started witnessing He didn't take a break. 
He didn't go off in the mountains for a few months or years. He left his tax booth, started following Jesus, and he had this banquet. So, if you know enough to be saved, you are able to share the gospel boldly and immediately like Levi did. If you understand the gospel, let that be enough ammunition for you to go out and engage in spiritual warfare of evangelism. Trust the Holy Spirit that he will do his work through you as you preach the gospel to your friends. The second lesson that we can learn from Levi's evangelism is this. Start with those around you. Start with those around you. That's precisely what Levi did. He rounded up all of the lost people whom were in his fear of influence. So for us, that means do your best to witness to your coworkers, to your classmates, to your neighbors, to your friends, to your unsaved relatives. I'll admit that I could do better with this. I'll admit, just as much as anybody, that it's, it's hard to witness to your neighbors. Because if they get offended, you have to still have to live next to them. <laughs> but we, we, we need to remember that we are here to witness to people around us. We believe that God is sovereign. You need to understand and believe and practice your faith in this area, knowing that God has intentionally in his control brought people to cross your path. There's no accident. One way that I try to influence lost people in our community is via my kids' sports teams. In fact, the last evangelistic encounter I had was with one of the soccer dads about a week ago over at the Red Pepper Pizza place. Just just bumping into him at the soccer games, at the practice, at the practice field. You know, it's easy for me because I'm a pastor, and then that kind of opens the door. But at the same time, it still takes work. It still takes effort. It still takes a little bit of courage to ask the questions that provoke his thinking. And so, find a way for you to get more involved and have FaceTime with unsaved people around you. Start with those around you. Number three, use your house. How many people have a house or an apartment or something? Right? Nobody lives in a tent here, right? So this is what Levi did. And obviously, Jesus had no problem with it. So think of your home as a non-threatening place to evangelize. Use what God has supplied for outreach. Be a good steward of what he's given you. Use it for the kingdom. Because as you know, as well as I do, most lost people would never come to this building on a Sunday morning. For many reasons. I think the main reason why they don't, from a human perspective, is because it'd be weird. I mean, for a lot of believers, they think our worship service is weird. Right? It's very simple. It's very sober-minded. It's very structured. There's nothing flashy. There's nothing entertaining, right? So for a lot of professing believers, our church services is weird. 
So think about what it would be like for an unbeliever. They would totally feel like a fish out of water here, wouldn't they? And you know what? Listen, that's a good thing. If an unbeliever feels comfortable here, I think we're doing something wrong. I think we're doing something wrong because the purpose of our corporate worship service is for the saints. Not for the unconverted. Now, if you want to invite lost people to church, that's great. That's fine. I'll always welcome anybody who, any, who wants to come anytime. And I'll go out of my way to greet them and love them the best I can. And so should all of you, right? But you also must understand that, that, that the main purpose of Sunday morning worship is not to evangelize lost people. The main purpose for this hour is for God's people to worship together. That's the, that's the primary purpose, okay? Now, I know many of you probably know that, but some of you probably haven't heard this before. That's really important to understand. So we need to follow Levi's example. Invite your friends over for dinner. And pray for open doors to share the gospel. But, and I think you'll appreciate this coming from me, right? Be sure that you do it in the right way. At least the fourth lesson we learned from Levi. Be winsome. Be winsome in your evangelism. One-on-one evangelism should not carry the same tone as public preaching. When a man stands behind a pulpit, he is proclaiming the word of truth, and so it carries with it divine authority. That's why God has used my military command presence to preach. Because preaching that's not authoritative and passionate is not preaching. But personal witnessing is a dialogue. It's not a sermon. So most of you who would, couldn't, wouldn't get up here and preach for a million dollars because you get stage fright. You don't like speaking in front of people. That's, that's the way a lot of people are. My wife is wonderful one-on-one, isn't she? Yeah, she, yeah say yes. She's, yeah, she's not here right now, so I won't embarrass her. But, but, but my dear wife, if you, if you ask her to come up here and pray or teach, she would melt. That's fine. God's given us different desires, different gifts, different talents, different abilities. But one thing that all of us have the ability to do and have the responsibility to do is one-on-one evangelism. So do your best to ensure that what's being communicated is desirable to the hearer. Now, it doesn't mean that you leave out the hard doctrines, like substitutionary atonement and eternal punishment. Those things, those components need to be in your gospel presentation. It doesn't also mean being winsome in your evangelism doesn't mean that you got to put God on the stand by trying to answer every skeptic's question with extra-biblical evidence. Okay? It's not our job to defend God. God does not need an attorney. So do not let even a highly educated skeptic intimidate you with lofty, academic, nerdy questions about You name it. Just stick to the gospel. Stick to the law. 
stick to grace and allow the Lord to save people through that. Romans 1, remember that, what Paul said? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and salvation. It's not your evidence that wins people. It's the power of the gospel spoken through you, Holy Spirit uses to convert the dead sinner. So, here's what being winsome does mean, okay? Now, this is a little subjective, and it, and, it, and it begs wisdom, but still, this needs to be said. Being winsome means that your evangelism does not make their hearer more hardened to the truth. Do not let your presentation of the gospel harden sinners even more than they already are. Now, sometimes that can't be avoided. Because some people are just already fired up and so angry and hardened, usually based on the experience they had before, right? But most of the time, it's possible and it's biblical to make sure that your presentation, your clear presentation of the gospel does not, is not the instrument, the vehicle of hardening someone more than they already are. So, these four lessons... If the Holy Spirit right now is convicting you to be a more faithful witness for Christ, and I know the Holy Spirit is convicting somebody in here right now, because this is an area of our Christian life where we all can improve on. Witnessing. So if the Holy Spirit is convicting right now, take these four lessons that we learned from Levi and Mark 2.15. Start witnessing immediately if you stopped. Start with those around you if you haven't witnessed to them yet. Use your house. Be hospitable. It's a Christian virtue. Be winsome. Apply those lessons and pray for God to cause the growth. Pray for God to cause the growth. We're responsible to plant the seed. We let the result to God. Amen? And you need to pray. Pray fervently for God's elect to be saved because there may very well and likely come along modern-day Pharisees who will try to choke out the truth that you planted. And that leads us to the second point. I want you to see number two, the scribe's question in verse 16. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, he said to the disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this is the first time we came across the term Pharisee in our exposition of Mark. So briefly, let me give you a little bit of background. Pharisee literally means separated one. So these Pharisees, they were the separatists of the day. They were the cultural fundamentalists, if you will. They prided themselves on being separate from anyone that wasn't like them. You guys guys know people like that? That they just identify with separation more than Christianity. These Pharisees were the primary guardians and advocates of the legalistic traditions that permeated and enslaved. Judaism at that time. Their precise origin is not known, but most historians agree that their sect was formed sometime before the middle of the 2nd century B.C. 
So they predate Christ. By the time of Christ's ministry, they comprised the dominant religious group in Israel. They were the majority. They were fervently, ferociously devoted to keeping the people loyal to the Old Testament law, but not only that, to a set of complex, extra-biblical traditions that they developed around the law. Okay? So think of it this way. You guys, you guys know the command, be not drunk with wine. Ephesians 5.18. So I would be a Pharisee if I took that command and said, listen, church, you are forbidden to go inside any liquor store at any time. Because the intent of that law is to keep you from breaking the biblical command. But what happens? What does the nature of man do with those principles to help you not sin? That becomes law. Right? Is it a sin for you going to a liquor store? No. Is it wise, especially if you're a former alcoholic, not to go into one? Yeah. But nobody could say it's ever sinful to go into a liquor store or a bar or whatever. But the Pharisees took Old Testament law and created laws on top of those laws to protect people from breaking God's laws. And over time, that just snowballed and snowballed, became so large, it was out of control, and it was a tremendous burden. That's why Jesus says, take my burden. light because the Jews were carrying around this massive burden of extra biblical laws in the eyes of these common people they they were highly esteemed for their apparent spirituality and apparent scriptural fidelity much like in the same way uh, I'm not attacking here I'm just saying how it is just like in the Roman Catholic Church right There is a tremendous esteem for cardinals and the pope. Just because they're cardinals and he's the pope. Right? In the same way, the Jews esteemed the Pharisees. And those who would join this sect, which numbered about 6,000 by the time Jesus came around, those who joined this sect diligently avoided any interaction with Gentiles, tax collectors, and people they regarded as sinners. Even their attitude toward common Jewish people was one of disdain and ridicule. They considered themselves to be the most holy of holy of holy Israelites. But their holiness was what? Fake. External. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably read Matthew 23, which is a very strong condemnation of of these Pharisees. Matthew 23, verse 28 says, Woe to you, this is Jesus speaking, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. But inside they are full of what? Dead man's bones. Wow. What a vivid illustration. Whitewashed tombs. So their holiness, quote-unquote, mainly consisted of of adherence to their own 
rules and regulations, stipulations, as I said before, that were added through the years to the law of Moses. Therefore, with that background in mind, it's no wonder why they would approach this banquet with Levi, his fellow tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus, and ask the question, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? What's he doing? Why would he be there? Now, this question was not born out of curiosity. It was born of contempt. Their tone was not inquisitive. It was accusatory and vindictive. It was clearly rhetorical, intended as a self-righteous correction for what they viewed as immoral behavior on the part of Jesus. But, as I mentioned last week, and I'll probably say this often as we go through this gospel, one thing that I hope that you will also come to adore about Jesus is that he does not cower from a confrontation. Confrontation does not always have to be negative. Confrontation can be winsome. Confrontation can be edifying. Confrontation must be, as a believer, motivated by love, right? So if confrontation is a dirty word, change. (laughs) It can be very good. Because that's exactly what Jesus does time and time again. Here he has the perfect response to the Pharisees who are full of self-righteous hate for Levi and his friends. Verse 17, the last point is the Savior's response. First, we saw the sinner's house. The scribe's question. Now, the Savior's response. Verse 17, and hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Picture yourself in this house. Picture yourself as one of these dirty, Gentile, pagan sinners. A high-ranking Pharisee comes in, and he calls out Jesus. And Jesus has an answer. This response was unorthodox. It was unheard of, it was unpopular, it was unwanted, and uncompromising. But the Lord did not hesitate to fire a silver bullet of truth into the hearts of the Pharisees' false thinking. In the twofold response that Jesus gave, he first uses a medical analogy to illustrate the compassionate nature of his ministry to sinful people. He did not come for the prideful. He did not come for the self-righteous, the arrogant, the smug. Why? Because the prideful man does not want to admit there's something wrong with him. You know what I mean? The prideful man does not want to admit he's sick. 
How often have you been associated with someone like this? Men, you're the worst. Men are the most prideful when it comes to getting medical care. Right? We, we want to be tough. We want to be individualistic. Yeah, I see the wives giving their husbands one of those things. It's true. Admit it. I'm the same way. We, we, we want to just deal with it and drive on and be tough. That's what most men are like. We're too prideful to go to the doctor because if we do, we don't want to come to grips with the likelihood that we need help. Now, as you know, I can relate to this. Because for a while, I was the guy that didn't want to go to the doctor when I discovered an abnormal lump on my neck. When I discovered it, I ignored it. I thought, ah, it'll just go away. And then when it didn't go away, it kept getting bigger. I started getting scared. So I went to my wife, and I said, wife, what do you think that is? You know what the first words out of her mouth were? You better go to the doctor. So I did. And as you know, it's a good thing I did. Because the symptom was a sign of cancer. It wasn't until I submitted myself to the doctor's diagnosis and recommendation for a specific treatment did I become convinced that I needed help in order to survive. If I didn't get the help, I would die. In the same way, in the same way, Jesus is only useful to you unless you understand that you need him. Like a terminally ill person knows he needs treatment. But in a different way, a cure to terminal spiritual cancer necessitates a spiritual cure. So unless you're convinced that you're a sinner in desperate need of him, you may as well have nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus can only help you when you admit you're sick. Because it's the sick people who need a physician, not the ones who think they're healthy. The second part of Jesus' response reiterated the main thrust of his ministry. By declaring, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, he was saying something very profound. Now, we read this on the surface and we ask, who are the righteous? Do such people exist? How does this jive with Romans 3, verse 10, which says, there is none righteous, not even one? Fair question? Well, again, the context obviously indicates that Jesus is talking about those who regard themselves as righteous. Not righteous according to the law in a good way, but righteous in their own eyes. Those whom think that they are holy. Those whom think that they don't need to repent. Those whom think they are not spiritually sick. 
Jesus was saying that he did not come for those who do not believe they don't need a Savior. Because salvation can't come to the self-righteous. Why? Because they think they already have it. In order to receive the gift of salvation, we all must first become needy, humble, and repentant. The self-righteous, the unrepentant, don't admit they need to be saved from hell because they think they're good people. On the contrary, and here's the good news. This is the good news for you and I. Jesus came to call those whom see themselves for what they are. Sinners. Sinners are people who realize they were born enemies of God. Haters of God. Rebels against God. Sinners are those whom look into the perfect mirror of the law and confess that they are not worthy to stand in God's presence. Sinners are those whom have humbled themselves before the throne of God and pray as the tax, as the tax collector did in Luke 18.13. Remember that? In Luke 18, this tax collector stood a distance away from the temple alongside a self-righteous Pharisee. The text says that he was unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven. But he was beating his breast and he prayed, God, be merciful to me. What's it say? The sinner. The sinner. The sinner. Definite article. What's that tell you? This tax collector did not view himself in a large pool of sinners just like him. This tax collector viewed himself as the chief sinner. And that's what all of us need to do. We need to go to God and we need to view ourselves as the chief sinner. Christ did not die for a large group of people. He died for you individually. Your sins, your personal sins, were placed on him. It's personal. This is whom Jesus came to call. He came to call the humble. He came to call the repentant. Jesus is no use to people who do not think they need to be saved. Jesus is no use to somebody who would stand before, who would dare to stand before the bar of God and say, look how good of a person I am. He does not come for those people. Jesus desires obedience from the heart and repentant, true faith. So in closing today, I must ask, as I ask myself, Have you ever prayed the way the tax collector did in Luke 18? 
Have you stood before God in prayer and said, be merciful to me, the sinner? Have you peered into God's word and become dogmatically convinced that you are in desperate need of treatment from the great physician? Do you understand that Jesus was a friend of sinners? Not because he tolerated or condoned sin, but because sinners are the ones he came to call. As a sinner who has been called, regenerated, and converted, are you being faithful? Are you being a faithful witness like Levi, the former tax collector and sinner? My prayer for you all this morning, my fellow dirty Gentiles, is to rekindle your passion to introduce the people in your sphere of influence to Jesus Christ. Go out and be, like Jesus, a friend of sinners. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have called us and given us a purpose in life. We don't have to be like the world who aimlessly wanders around searching for a purpose. Our purpose is not to be married, to raise children. It's not to even come to church. It's not to do anything other than to make disciples. That is our purpose in life, Lord. Everything else is secondary. We want to understand this. We want to live like we believe that. But also, as the, as the hymn that we sung earlier, we can't do it on our own. Without your spirit, we're weak and feeble. So, Father, may your spirit convict us and embolden us and enable us to obey you in this way. Give us a desire to evangelize. Give us a renewed zeal for the gospel. Give us a renewed repentant heart. Father, if there's anybody here who, are, who is trusting in their own works and their own self-righteousness to save them on that day, Father, please reveal the truth. Please, Lord. We love you. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.